We're talking out of John chapter 4. We're going to, we go a number of places out of that. We're talking about this subject of worship, and we're going to read through these verses again this morning. John chapter 4, verses 10 through 24. Jesus answered and said to her, he's talking to a woman who was a Samaritan woman. He was on his way from Jerusalem, from Judea, up into Galilee, back into his home. In order to do that, he had to go through Samaria. Samaria, as we've talked about on a number of weeks now, was an area in between that was made up of people that were partially Jewish and par- partially Jews and partially Gentiles. And the result is that they were considered to not be pure Jews by the Jews, and therefore they were looked down upon. They were, they were disdained. And of course, the response back is that the Samaritans disdained or looked down upon the Jews. So there was basically racial, it was a racial strife here. And Jesus stops at this well in this, in this, outside this city of Sychar in Samaria, and he waits while his disciples go in to buy food. And this woman comes to him and he asks her for a drink of water which was amazing because a Samaritan, a male, Jewish male didn't speak to a Samaritan woman for two reasons. First of all, they, wouldn't, they were not allowed to speak to a, an unaccompanied woman. Secondly, Jews didn't speak to, to Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't speak to Jews. But Jesus speaks to her, and then she, 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 he says to her, Give me something to drink. And the woman questions, Why are you a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan? Jesus' answer is where we're going to pick up in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? Drank from himself as well as his sons and his livestock. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of wet water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Well, sir, give me this water so that I may not thirst and have to come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said, You have spoken well. You have no husband, for you had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. In that you have spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For we worship what we, you worship what you do not know. We, worship, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, for God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. We've begun to talk about worship. We're beginning by seeing what Jesus says here in verse 23, that worship is not an experience that we have on Sunday morning. Worship is not something that we do that's an experience that we have that, you know, I feel good. I, well, wasn't the worship, praise and worship good today? Or maybe it was a little off today. It's not about that. It's about satisfying the heart of our Father God. For we see in here that the Father, God, our Creator, the Creator of the universe, who can have anything He wants, do anything He wants to do just by issuing words, the one thing He longs for, the one thing He desires, the one thing that's in our control, whether He has or not, to satisfy that yearning is He longs for true worshipers. And there are things we're going to look at what a true worshiper is. But we're starting by just looking at the perspective is God our Father longs for true worshipers. 
And that means that every time we walk in this door, there's a hard, God's heart is longing for something. We come in with needs and desires and things we want to see happen. We want to see maybe many people come in here with needs and they're longing to have those met. Some people come in here, probably a number of people, maybe many people come in here this morning and you're lonely, you're hurting, you just want some human contact. And so you're hoping maybe somebody can meet that need, maybe God can meet my need. Some of you need direction in your life, some of you need a job, some of you need an answer, deliverance from situations, some of them are actually overwhelming and you come here conscious for what you need and what you want, but we never think, very rarely think, that God has something He wants when we come together. There's something He longs for, His heart desires. And what I'll show you in Scriptures, we've looked at it before, as you begin to meet God's desire and God's need, God opens up His heart to meet your need and your desire. It's not something we earn, it's just a natural response. This last week, it's, uh, we, our children have one, grandchildren have one more week before they go back to school, and I was here working, and I'm blessed because not only do they go to school here, but their parents work here, so even in the summertime, they're around, and I've got a little shadow. He's my grandson, Jonathan, and he's, you know, he comes in the door, he starts following me around, and I love every moment of it. And, and the, uh, was it Thursday, I think it was? He's walking down here, and he looks to me, Papa, he says, Papa, could you take me out? I had a busy schedule. He says, could you take me? I said, what do you want to do? He says, I want to go to Starbucks. <laughs> well, he's been trained well. <laughs> the reason is because earlier this year, he had written me a note saying, some t- oh, he gave me a gift card. He said, this gift card is so that you can take me to Starbucks <laughs> out of school. <laughs> and so I did that. I took him out and I went over there and I said, what do you want? And we had lunch together over there. So what he was remembering that, he wanted to do that again. So I took him and I took his, my, our granddaughter who just turned 10. And I took him with me and I went over there and we got, you know, got her the brownie, got him what he wanted. And I'm sitting there with him and just, you know, on a busy schedule, but there's precious moments. Precious moments. And I began to talk to them. And I said to Emma, I said, you know, you're coming to the end of your summer. What's been the most exciting thing? What's the thing you like the best out of this summer? And she looked at me, she says, Papa, this time I've spent with you. And my first reaction... (laughs) Now, I share that because my reaction was to do something for her, not because she earned it by what she said to me, she, she didn't say that to me, knowing if she says that to me, I'm going to do something nice back. She wasn't expecting anything back. It was an expression of her love and the desire that she has to be with her papa and her nemo, to be with her grandparents. Well, what that did for me. And I went right home and told her grandmother what it did. I mean, her reaction is the same. But it's the same with our Heavenly Father. It's the same with Him. That's what worship is. Worship is loving Him. It's just opening your heart to love Him. It's not asking for things. It's just appreciating who He is and who He is for us. But boy, if I have that instinct to respond to her that way, how much more does He have that instinct? So it's not something we earn It's not worshiping so God will do things for us. It's a relationship 
And as we satisfy the desire of his heart, he's just waiting to satisfy the desire of your heart. So that's what this is about, this section of Scripture. That's why we're looking at it. But we're still back in verse 10 because there's something which I had never seen before until several weeks ago when we read this together. Jesus says to her in the very beginning of that verse, if you knew who it is that's talking to you, if you knew who it is that was asking you, you would ask of him, of me, and I would give you living water. And we've seen that Jesus is trying to bring her understanding, her focus up off of natural things. She came there looking for water, natural water. And we come in here looking for our natural needs to be met. Even if it's just the need of feeling like I belong to something or, you know, people care for me. That's a natural need. It's an important need. But when we come in here, God wants to lift our eyes off of this natural life because there's a life that He's offered to us. There's a life that's in you. If you've come to Christ and given your life to Him, there's a life that's in you. This well of living water is in you and He wants to lift your eyes up off of the natural things we spend so much time looking at and begin to look at, our, look at what He wants to show us, what He wants to give to us. Every time you come in here, there's something, the creator of the universe. Think about that a second the creator of the universe who spoke it into existence. There's something he wants to do for you. My favorite, one of my favorite scriptures is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, down through verse 10. It says, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man all that God has prepared for him. And it goes on to say in the next verse, but the Spirit of God is given that He may reveal them to us. God has things for you, answers for you, deliverances for you, strength for you, healing for you, provision for you. He'll satisfy that inner need for you. He has it all every time. you. He has it for you at home. But when we come together collectively, there's a greater power. But unless we get our eyes off of the natural stuff like the chair in front of you and whether the person sitting in front of you combed their hair right or not or whether the temperature's right, all of those are distractions from the things He wants to show us that He has for us. And we saw last week in this verse 10, Jesus is saying to her, because you don't know who it is you're sitting with, because you don't know whose presence you're in, you don't ask for what He could give you. And the problem we have when we come together is because we really don't know who He is by experience. Oh, we know it intellectually. Oh, yes, He's God. He can do anything. But we don't know that by experience. When I shared with you earlier, when I was greeting you, how when I was awake this week at one morning at three in the morning and just, you know, kind of overwhelmed by things running around in my mind, and the Lord began to take me back through things He's done for me, ways, everything that's come across that was significant in the how he brought me through it, the wisdom he gave. And even when I didn't have, seem to have the wisdom, just the, the strength to go through it. And as I began to look back on those things, it made who he was in my life more real to me. It wasn't a concept anymore. It was experiences. And see, when you've had experiences with someone, nobody can talk you out of that. See, nobody can convince me God's not real. I, 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 I hear from him. I've heard from him. I've seen him work in my life in ways that there's no other explanation for. It's, you've come too late for me. 
You've come too late to tell me Jesus isn't real. That Jesus, you've come too late for me because I, I, I've had experiences with him. I've seen him work in my life. And so when you've had those, it changes you. It becomes more real. And Jesus is saying to this woman, if you knew who, if you could, if you had a revelation of who it is that's talking to you, the opportunity that you have right now, you would ask things of me more than water. And that's the opportunity we have every time we come here to worship him. So we're not just coming to sing songs. We're not just coming to feel better because the music's uplifting. We're coming to have an encounter with the true and the living God. We went back and we've seen how other people had this encounter with God. We've seen back in Exodus chapter 19, we saw this is really one of the key things we're looking at is God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt and brought them down to the Sinai Peninsula. And, and, and God called Moses up on a mountain, speaks to him, he says, I want to come and meet with my people. So go down and tell them to prepare for three days and come out at the base of the mountain. But draw a rope around the base of the mountain so that they don't run up here because if they run up here, they're going to die because I'm a holy God and they're not a holy people yet. And so that's what happened. Moses prepares them and three days later, God comes down on that mountain in the form of thunder and lightning. And the people come out to meet with their God. And the, the verse that's so powerful to me is verse 17, Exodus 19, 17, where it says, And Moses brought the people out to meet with their God. That's what I see my role on Sunday. That's what I see the role of the praise, whoever's doing praise and worship. That's what I see our role here, is to help bring us out so that we can meet with our God together. Because He longs to meet with us together. And He wants us to have the same longing to meet together with him. But what happened on that day is God comes down in that form, the people see the power of the thunder and the lightning, and they become afraid and they run away from God. And we've talked about the fact that they ran away from God, Moses ran to God. So the, the power and the majesty of God doesn't automatically, doesn't drive people from, it gives people a choice. And we have saw that. We saw that, that when that Isaiah, we looked in Isaiah chapter 6, and we saw that when God called Isaiah into his prophetic ministry, there was a point where Isaiah is brought up into the actual throne room of God, whether it's a vision or he's physically there, we don't know. But he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I was, high, I, I was brought into the throne of God, I saw the Lord. And we talked about that. What happened? I saw the Lord. What did Jesus say to the woman? If you knew who it was that was with you, Isaiah knew who God was. He'd worshipped him his whole life. But in that encounter, he saw him. In that encounter, God took on a dimension to Isaiah that he hadn't had before. In that moment when Isaiah saw God for who God is, it changed Isaiah because his first reaction was to fall down and say, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people that are unclean. Isaiah was a good and a righteous man compared to almost everybody in the nation at that time. But when he saw who God was, he realized who he was apart from God. And then he realized how desperately he needed God. We talked earlier in, in the greeting through one of the songs we shared today, together today about I need thee, oh I need thee, every moment I need thee. That's a nice song to sing, but it's only as real to you as you know how much you need him. And the, and the revelation of how much you need Him is when you find out who you really are on your own. 
at what you're capable of doing on your own. A lot of us have more confidence in ourselves than is realistic. Either we think we're, one way or the other, we either think we're, we're, we're strong enough, I, you know, I'll get through this, and we're New Englanders. I know we got visitors from Canada here. I don't know whether you're better or worse at this, but we are, have an independent spirit here. Bless God, I got myself into this mess. I'm going to get myself out of this. Well, we learn from Scripture that doesn't bless God. All it does is build your confidence in you and your independence. And God wants, us to, wants to reveal to us how absolutely dependent upon Him we are because the more dependent on Him you realize you are, the better you get to know who He is and what He'll do for you. And so God has to show Isaiah just what a hotshot He is on His own. And the way God does it, it says, come, see who I really am. It was when I saw the Lord, He was high and lifted up. We looked at, we looked at Joshua standing outside the city of Jericho, this overwhelming task that he had in front of him. And it was, he didn't know what to do, so he goes up on a hill, and there's an angel appears to him, a commander of the army of the host of the Lord. And when he appears to him, the angel says to him, he falls down, he says, take your shoes off because the place you're standing is holy ground. We saw Moses in Exodus chapter 3. We saw Moses' first encounter with the living God. Moses has been on the backside of the wilderness taking care of somebody else's sheep, not realizing he was being trained and prepared to take care of God's sheep the next 40 years. And when the time came for, Mo- for Moses to enter in, when God's time came for Moses to enter into his, into his calling, Moses has already tried to do it 40 years earlier, but it wasn't God's timing. He goes around the side of this mountain, and there's a bush we talked about. The bush is on fire, or looks like it's on fire, but it's not consumed. And Moses said, I think I'm going to turn aside and see what this is. And when he turned aside to get grow closer to this, then God spoke to him and said to him, take your sandals off because the place you're standing is holy ground. We saw, we ended by looking at, at Acts chapter 9. We saw Paul on the way to Damascus. Paul was a devout Jew. He, his, out of his the sincere commitment to the scriptures, he believed that this new Christian faith was a heresy and he was doing everything in his power to destroy it. And he's on his way to Damascus with letters from the chief priest to arrest every Christian in Damascus and bring them back for prosecution in Jerusalem. And on the way to Damascus, a bright light appears and he hears a voice speaking to him saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We don't see Saul sitting on his horse saying, Defending himself, he falls to the ground and cries out, Who are you, Lord? So what we see is when people have an actual encounter with God and get a taste or even a a glimpse of His glory and His majesty and His holiness, it affects them. They're never the same. It changes them. One of the ways it changes them, it gives them a reverence for God that they didn't have without that experience. It gives them a reverence for God that they didn't have without that experience. We saw in Leviticus chapter 26, and we'll go back there again, we saw where God's speaking to His people, and He says, this is what I want to do. I enter into a covenant with you, and I want to be your God, and I want you to be my people. But here's what I need you to do. I need you to, I need you to reverence my sanctuary, because I am the Lord, your God. I want you to reverence 
my sanctuary, because I am the Lord, your God. And he goes on to say, if you will do that and you'll keep my commandments, then I will, the word actually is, I will lean towards you. That's what I did with my granddaughter. She reverenced me, not getting on the ground and falling down, but telling me she loves us. She loves us, and not just with words, but just the natural expression of her face. And I leaned towards her. I wanted to do something for her. We want God involved in our lives, but we pull away from Him. We want Him. Here's what it comes down to we want God on our terms. We want God on our terms. So we come, we arrive when we want to arrive. We dress the way we want to dress. And I'm not talking about whether appropriate dress or not. But we decide what we're going to do based on what we want. How we feel. Do you understand? I've seen this, this statistic. That of the people that consider themselves regular churchgoers. I mean, call me Christians. That go to Bible-believing churches that consider themselves regular churchgoers, 62% of them only come twice a month. They consider that. So 62% of the Bible-believing church world in the United States believe that regular attendance is twice a month. That means the other two Sundays is my choice. And we wonder why God doesn't show up and do things. It reflects what we think of God. Not intellectually what we believe about Him, but you understand there can be a big difference between what you believe in your mind and the attitude of your heart. And the, what reveals the attitude of our heart is how we act and how we talk. So I ask the question, I'm asking this of myself, what's my attitude when I come here? In my case, I have to be here. But, I can come because it's my job. I can wake up one Sunday morning and say, I'm going to be on my feet from 8 o'clock until 1 something. I'm going to preach two messages. I'm, this, you know, this is going to be a long, hard day. Oh, God, please help get me through it. I can have that attitude, or I can come say, Father, what an incredible privilege I have. What an incredible privilege and opportunity that I have. So even though it's my job, I have to be here. It's like the story about the phone call goes off, and the guy wakes up, and it's the mother saying, you know, you need to get up. You need to be in church. Why do I have to go to church? I don't want to go to church. Today. Why do I have to be in church? Because you're the pastor. <laughs> well, there's some mornings I wake up on Sunday like that, but I'm learning to make that adjustment of my attitude. Now, you don't have to be here, but you come for whatever reason it is but is it to come to reverence Him? Do we reverence His sanctuary? Now, I know, and we've talked about this before, this is a building. It's made of concrete and steel and fabrics and plastic and all kinds of stuff that you could turn this building into something else and it still just be a building. What makes this the sanctuary of God is 
his presence here, which comes in part when you bring it in, but it's also here because during the week we pray in here, we worship in here, things go on in here. I was in here yesterday for a couple of hours just praying up and down the aisles, calling on God to do the things that I sense he wants to do here. This is a sanctuary. I love to come in here during the week. It was wonderful yesterday. It was so peaceful. It was peaceful. The presence of God was here. It's a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a dwelling place. God wants to dwell here with us. But he's got to raise our eyes off of the natural things so that as Jesus said to the woman, if you knew who it is, if you know who it is that's here with you this morning, you would ask of me and I would give you living water. Some of you are hurting this morning, lonely, afraid. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen with the rest of your life. You may be facing that stage of life where, where you know, your income is going to change and, and you don't know whether there's going to be enough government money from the Social Security or what. You don't know what. You know, we've got these baby boomers, which I'm one of them, you know, right on the threshold of the baby boomers coming in, you know, and the statistics aren't good. What are we going to do? Is there going to be enough? What's the stock market going to do? All these uncertainties out there create an uneasiness inside. Where are we going to get the answers? Jesus said, if you come and ask of me, I have a water that you can drink of that will bring you peace in the midst of a storm. Remember Jesus in a storm where the, where the sailors thought they were going to sink? The carpenter was asleep on the back of the boat at perfect peace. That's where he wants us, in the middle of your storm of life, to be so at rest that you can lay your head down at night and have perfect, restful sleep because you know it's in His hands. Amen. You know it's in His hands. Amen. You know it's in His hands. But the more you experiencing, the more really is to you, the more confident you have that you can put those things into His hands. All right. So what have we learned from these encounters? First of all, we've learned that we come to God on His terms, not on ours. We can't make him show up. I mean, we know he's here by faith, but we can't make God's presence, we can't make God reveal himself to us. He come, we come on his terms, not on our terms. Second thing we've learned from this is that we can't take for granted the privilege that we have and the opportunity that we have to come into his presence. We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning and more. In the Old Testament, what God instructed Moses on the, on the mountain was a system of tents called the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. You can see it there in, in the book of Exodus. And there's a the book I've written that's in the bookstore about it. And we, may, we may talk about it later on. There was a series of, there was an outer court that only the priests could go into. The average person that wasn't a priest couldn't go into that court. And then inside that court, there was a tent that had two rooms in it. There was one room was called the Holy Place, and then the other room was called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, once this was constructed and, and consecrated, the presence of God came down in that room just like He came down on the mountain. So God wanted to be there with His people, but they couldn't come and see Him. They couldn't come be in His presence. The only one that could come into that room was the high priest. One day a year, the Day of Atonement, only wearing certain robes and having gone through certain sacrifices and performed certain things, which symbolically qualified him to come into the presence of God. 
The outer room represented a room where the priests could come in and they could eat a bread together called the showbread, which represented communion with God, but they weren't communing with God. They were going through a dead ritual. Recognizing on the other side of that wall, that tent, that veil, that curtain, was the actual presence of God, but they couldn't go in there. They could only do something that represented coming into His presence. But all of that could only take place because out in the outer court there was an altar. We talked about it last time called the brazen altar. And all that on that altar they brought animals that were sacrificed 24 hours a day while they were in camp. Ox, bulls, ox, uh, sheep, all kinds of animals were being brought and being, they're being sacrificed. I'm not going to go through the gory details of how they prepared them. But to suffice it to say this, there was a heat of about 2,000 degrees temperature, Fahrenheit, that would incinerate these animals. So the smell of this, the smell of burning flesh was constantly in the camp. It was a reminder to them that the only reason God could dwell in their presence is because the, there was a price being paid so that He could dwell there. So the high priest and the priest couldn't operate in this unless that sacrifice was continually being made. And that was a constant reminder that on their own they had no right to come into the presence of God. On their own they had nothing that they could give to God that He was obligated to receive. But it was only because of sacrifices being made according to the instructions that God gave them. So they couldn't just walk into the presence of God. They had to pay a price. They had to sacrifice something. They had to sacrifice an animal of some kind and there was instructions on which kinds for what kind of sacrifices. whole system of that. So they couldn't just walk in whenever they wanted to. They couldn't just do what they wanted to do. There was a very technical, legalistic system that they had to abide by. So we have to remember that it's a privilege and not take it for granted. And then ultimately, we have to remember that the only only right or privilege that we have to come in here and believe that we can enter into the presence of God is because 2,000 years ago this same Jesus hung on a cross on Calvary and on that cross He took your sin and my sin upon Himself and on that cross God poured out His wrath and His judgment for your sin and my sin and then the Bible says He took Jesus' righteousness and He gave it to you when you came to Christ. When you came to Christ, He took His righteousness and gave it to you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 said, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God because we're in Christ. It's not your righteousness that allows you to come into the presence of God. It's because you're in Christ, you have His righteousness. We must never forget, because if we forget that, then that changes this from a worship service to a concert. It changes it from a worship service to a social gathering. You know, we can come together some Sunday and have the most amazing worship experience, the presence of God is here, come together the next Sunday and it's a social gathering. Same building, same people, same music. The difference is our attitude, Amen. our motive, what we've come for, how we see what we're doing. God's here. 
God longs every time we come together for the most intimate worship experience possible. That's what he longs for. But what happens is based on our choice. But in many cases, we haven't made the right choice because we haven't understood what the choices are. And that's the purpose for this teaching. That's the purpose. We're laying a foundation here for the changes we've already talked about we're going to make. We've talked about we're going to make changes and we haven't made all of them yet. We haven't really begun to make many of them yet because we're laying a foundation so that we can understand where it is we're going so that we can go together. So whether today or next Sunday or Wednesday night or in the next time we gather together, whether it's a social gathering, whether it's a nice concert, whether we heard good music and nice teaching, or whether we had an encounter with God is really up to us. It's the attitude with which we come together here. And so it's an understanding that the right we have, the privilege that we have to come into the presence of God and expect Him to be here with us is only because of the cross of Jesus Christ and because you've chosen to put your faith in that cross. Now let's look today at the New Testament. Let's look at that because the stories we've looked at are all out of the Old Testament and that's before Jesus went to the cross. Now we'll begin to look today at, all right, let's get into the New Testament and begin to see what a difference it makes. So let's go, there's lots of things we could look at, but we're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. And while we're turning there, let me just remind you of some background, which we've talked about before in other contexts. All of this is really returning to an experience of God's presence that is exactly what they had in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Because in those chapters, in the beginning, when God created that man and then that woman out of that man, they walked in perfect communion with God. They saw him for who he was in all his glory and all his majesty. They walked in an intimate, close fellowship relationship with him and we saw that in that process they were totally caught up in who he is. And were so caught up in who he is we saw at the end of chapter 2 they didn't even realize that they didn't have clothes on. That's how unaware of themselves they were because they were so caught up in and so aware of who he was. They walked in continual worship and honor of their God and their Creator and their Source and their Father. They walked in that. But of course, they allow sin in in chapter 2. In everything from chapter 3, verse 15, on through the rest of the Bible, is the process of God restoring that intimacy and that closeness and openness of worship that was present in the first two chapters. All right. So we've seen God sent Jesus to pay for our sin. God sent Jesus to take our sin upon Himself for the judgment of that sin to be upon Him. And then God took His right for those that come to Christ to receive Him. God takes His righteousness and attributes His righteousness to you and me. Because Jesus has the right and the privilege to stand in the presence of the Father. Because He walks in perfect righteousness. And He's given that righteousness to you and me so that we can come into His presence with the same confidence that Jesus has to come into His presence. Hebrews chapter 10. There's so much in here we could look at, but we want to focus on something in particular. Start in verse 14. For by one offering He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. 
But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after he said that before. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. And he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there's remission of sin, there's no longer an offering for sin. Under the Old Testament in that tabernacle, they had to, this is what it says earlier in this chapter, they had to continually offer sacrifices because the blood of the bulls and goats never took the sin away, it just covered it over temporarily. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of God's Son, is powerful enough not just to cover it over, but to eradicate it. Colossians says, the charges written against you were nailed to the cross and they were, the word in the Greek is they were eradicated. Like ink eradicator. They have white out that they put over things. White out just covers over. They used to have an eradicator which pulled the ink off the paper. He didn't cover over your sins with white out. He eradicated the record of it. And the blood of bulls and goats isn't strong enough to eradicate the ink of the writing against you, but the blood of Jesus is. And why did God do that? Just so we could go to heaven? That's wonderful. If that's all He did it for, that's great. But so much more. And part of it is so that we can now come as sons and daughters to the presence of our Father. But what he's talking about here is, in the Old Testament, that constant smell of burning flesh was a reminder to them that their sins had to continually be paid for. Because once they brought that offering and that sin was atoned for, if they went home and sinned again, they had to bring another offering. And you know when they went home, they sinned again somewhere. Okay. Verse 19. Therefore, because of what's just been said, because our sins have been remitted, not covered over, because there no longer has to be an offering for sin, because the offering that He made was good once and for all, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The holiest he's referring to is that inner room in the tabernacle where the presence of God dwelt over the the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the movie, The Ark of the Covenant? It was about that Ark, a lot of inaccuracies, but it was about that Ark that was put in that room. And over the top of that seat where two angels and the glory presence of God dwelt between those angels. And only the high priest could go in there one day a year because there was a veil, a curtain that separated it. And what he's saying here, the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is because of the blood of Jesus, there's a new way opened. That veil's been pulled away. Remember the story in, in the New, in, I think it's Matthew's account, where, where when Jesus died on the cross and he said he lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, into my, your hands I commend my spirit. And it says he, he gave up his spirit. Nobody took it away from him. He released it. 
When that happened, there was a great earthquake. There was thunders and lightning and a great earthquake. And it says, the veil of the temple. Now, this isn't the tabernacle. This is the replacement for that, which is the, taber- the temple of Solomon. The veil that separated the holiest place from the outer place was torn from the top to the bottom. Archaeologists estimate that that veil may have been 18 inches thick. And to me, it's significant that it says it was torn from the top to the bottom because it was so high, no man could reach it. So I believe what you had is when he gave up his spirit, when he died, when the price was paid, there was an angel on either side of this. This is what I believe. And when the price was paid so that you could now have access into the presence of God, they looked at each other and said they nodded and they both pulled back and ripped it in half. When they ripped it, when it tore in half from top to bottom, there was now no longer anything separating the presence of God from the access into it. And here we don't have time to get into it, but Hebrews talks about his flesh was that veil. When his flesh died, that thing that separated you and me from God was torn open because now we had been given his righteousness. Now we had the privilege of coming. We didn't have to jump through hoops. We didn't have to go through sacrifices because they'd already been, it had already been paid for us. So we could come anytime we wanted to. We can come anytime we want to. But we must never forget that the privilege of coming and expecting God to visit with us is only because Christ paid that price for us. It can't ever become, hey, I'm, a, I'm an elder here, or hey, I'm on staff here, or hey, I do this, and hey, I give my tithes. Or, hey, it can't ever be because of anything I've done. It can't be because, hey, you know, compared to the people sitting next to me, hmm, I'm pretty good stuff, you know. I was here last week. I wonder where they were. It can't ever be because of that. And not only that, when we decide whether we're going to come to church and be in His presence, remember what it cost Him for you to have the privilege to be able to come. Remember what it cost Him for you to have the right to say yes or no. Remember what it cost Him for you to be able to come here and me to be able to come here with the expectation that God wants to come here and meet with us and we can meet with Him. Remember what it cost Him. The next time I decide, you know, this is just a job. The next time we're tempted to say, well, I'm tired, I've got other things to do. The next time we're tempted, remember what the privilege cost Him. This is how we take it for granted. Somebody gives you a ticket to a concert or to a, 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 you know, suppose it's to a Patriots or Red Sox game or Yankees if you're a Yankee fan. I mean, you're, some, some, some event that's... But they don't just give you a ticket. They give you luxury box. And you look on the ticket and realize this cost them $500 because it was to a playoff game. You're just going to kind of toss it around in your car? No, you're going to show people you're going to know where it is and most likely you're going to go because you're aware of what it cost for that ticket. Remember what it cost you, him. Remember what it cost him for us to have this free access to come into his presence.
All right. Let's go on. Notice what he says, to come with boldness. That word boldness doesn't mean boldness just in the sense that we mean, hey, you know, I got a right to come in here. The word means confidence. Confidence to come just as you are. It means to be open and real and be just as you are. You don't have to measure up to come into his presence. It doesn't have to come, you know, I'm feeling really good, you know, I've been praying pretty faithfully this week and reading my Bible pretty faithfully, so I'm confident I can come and God's going to meet with me. We're going to look in a minute over in chapter 4. It says we're to come with the same boldness when we're in time of need. That means when you haven't been doing everything right. Come with confidence. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in how good we've been, how faithful we've been, or anything about ourselves. Our boldness, because what, look what he says here. Look what he says. These word, little words are so important. Verse 19, therefore. Remember what I've taught you? When you see the word therefore, ask what it's there for. It's a word connecting what he's about to say is based on what he just said. So here he says, therefore, come boldly. Having boldness. That boldness comes because our sins have been remitted. That boldness comes because He paid a price, took your sins and my sins, and gave us the righteousness that it takes to qualify for us to come in. That's why we have confidence to say, be ourselves. That's why it's not based on who you are or what you've done or how faithful you've been. That's why it's based on what He's done, how faithful He's been, how righteous He was, because He gave it to you. Therefore, because of what he's done, let us come with boldness to enter the holiest place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, having, and having a high priest over the household of God. So here's the second reason we come with confidence. The first is what he, the, that He paid the price for your sins and gave you His righteousness. The second reason is, and we didn't have time to go back and look at the prior chapters, but it established that He is a high priest. There was a high priest under the Old Testament system, but He is a high priest under a different system. He is the high priest where the old high priest, they had to replace Him every time He died. They don't have to replace this high priest because he's died once and for all. He was raised from the dead and is alive forevermore. So you have a high priest. I have a... That's a high priest means somebody that's representing you before the Father God. You have a representative there. 24 hours a day. And elsewhere in here he says, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. He's praying for you. Your representative in the court of God, your representative in the presence of God is none other than His Son who died for you and He's there representing you before a Father who doesn't understand what your struggles are like, but He does because He went through struggles like you go through, yet He didn't sin. He's there representing you to make up for your weaknesses, your lack, your failures. You ever feel like you're just not... Strong enough or good enough to be for, to, to pray or for that's why a lot of people pull back. Well, I you know you don't know who I am. Yeah, he does. 
Jesus is your representative to fill in the gaps. Where you fall short, he makes up the difference. Because you're in him. He is enough. He is righteous enough. He is faithful enough. He is true enough. He loves enough. He gives enough. He does enough. And you're in Him and He does enough. Therefore, He makes up for what you don't do. That's what the Word says. Therefore, I can come with boldness because of what He has done and not only what He has done, what He continues to do now because He's a faithful high priest representing me. Let us draw near, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart. Here we go back to what we saw in John chapter 4. For true worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So here he says, in order to come, we must come with a true heart. That means sincere, open, honest. Just like they were in the garden before the fall, nothing held back. So you don't have to hold back from God your secret things in your life because He knows them already. He knows some secret things that even you don't know. And He wants you to come to Him so that He can shine His light on them not to punish you or judge you for them but to free you of them. The reason the children of Israel ran away from the presence of God is they were afraid that He'd reveal what's going on. It says that in John chapter 3. It talks about the light. It says people that draw away from the light are because they're afraid the light's going to reveal for them things in their life they don't want revealed. The Bible says that God knows everything about us. I don't know about you, but for me that's good news. Because I don't fully always trust my motives because I know myself. I know my intentions. But not always. Sometimes I, it's, I don't want to shock you. So please don't tell anybody but there have been a couple of moments in my life since I got saved when I was actually selfish. Sorry, your pastor was selfish once. Yeah, right, once. We've all done that. We've all struggled with that. And I'm glad he knows everything about me because I, you know, I need to know some of the things he knows about me. But that's because I want to change. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to be more like him. All right, we've got to move on. Let us draw near with a true or sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Faith in what? Faith in what Christ has done for us. Full assurance, not based on me, full assurance of what He's done. My faith is in what He's done. Draw near with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness. That actually means a consciousness of evil, of your own evil. Guilt, consciousness, a guilty conscience. It's one of the things that keeps people from worshiping truly as they don't feel worthy of it. You're not. <laughs> Let's just get it out in the open. You're not worthy. I'm not worthy. Paul wasn't worthy. Peter wasn't worthy. None of us were worthy. There's only one that's been worthy, but he paid. The worthy one paid for your unworthiness. So let's come in full assurance of what he's done, not what I've done. Full assurance. 
having our hearts sprinkled from a consciousness of evil. It's been washed away. Yes, you can sin. I'm not saying you can't sin. And when you sin, I know some people out there disagree with it, but 1 John 1 9 me, if we confess our sins, that means if we sin, we need to confess them. Becoming more and more popular out there to believe you don't have to confess your sin because we've been the righteousness of God. It's completely unscriptural. Completely unscriptural. And it's a dangerous doctrine. I'll get into that sometime later on. Got quiet here. <laughs> but the good news is if you've sinned, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. All you've got to do is confess it. He'll. That's our part. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I don't know what the problem is. No, I don't want to go there because I'll get, I'll get off on a rabbit trail there. All right. And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another. The word means to broke one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. I guess it was back then too. But exhorting one another so much more as you see the day coming. Now let's go quickly over to Ephesians chapter 4. Hebrews 4, I referred to this a few minutes ago. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's our confession of faith in Him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. In other words, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, was in all points tempted as we are, yet he didn't sin. So the one that's representing you before God knows what your struggle's like because he's struggled like you have. In fact, in Hebrews 12, it says you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood like he did. He knows what it's like to deal with sin. He knows what it's like to deal with temptation. Yet he never gave in to it. So because he knows the struggle, he can listen to you and be sympathetic to you. But because he never gave in to it, he can represent you before a righteous God. That's how he's a high priest before you. Let us therefore, verse 16, come boldly, that's that same word, openly, without reservation, freely, sharing honestly and freely with Him. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Not judgment. Grace. So that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's when things didn't go well. That's when you messed up. Don't run away. Come to Him. Draw near to Him. Ephesians chapter... see which one am I going to go to first. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Well, I'll just tell you what it says. It says, Through Him, Christ, we have access to one Father through the Spirit. Through Him, through Jesus, we have access to, one fa- to the Father through the Spirit. Ephesians 3.12 says, In Him we have boldness and access with confidence. With confidence before God. He wants you to have confidence before Him. Confidence in Him and what He's done. Not confidence in yourself. Now go back to Hebrews 12. 
So we've seen now in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, they had to be very careful how they approached God. And God was teaching them reverence for who He is. We saw examples of people that had an insight into Him, whether they were physically in His presence or in the presence of an angel. And all of them, their response, their reaction was, they're in the presence of a holy God, to be reverent to Him to the point of taking their shoes off, to the point of recognizing that this is holy ground where God is. And now we've looked today in the New Testament and we've seen we don't have to go through those. We don't have to take our shoes off. We don't have to go through certain sacrifices because those sacrifices have been paid so that we can have an open and free and the privilege of coming into God's presence every time we come here. But here's the problem. Here's what's happened in the church. We've gone to the other extreme. We become, we become so confident that we can come into His presence that we saunter in on our terms when we want, the way we want, dressed the way we want, talking the way we want. I mean, we have a time of prayer before the service. Most of the time, I'm the only one up here praying. Now, there are times where we have a group here to pray, but most people are socializing. That's because that's why they came here, was to talk to other people. But see, if we've come here recognizing the price that's been paid for the privilege we have, we would do our socializing somewhere else or at another time, and we would come here to spend time with Him. The privilege that we have. And the problem is the church has gone to the other extreme where we're so confident in the privilege, we take it so for granted that we've watered it down. And we... we, we, we <laughs> We think the few goosebumps we get are the presence of God. We think the good feeling we get is the presence of God. They didn't get goosebumps even in the book of Acts. I didn't say on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit blew into the place, they all got goosebumps and shouted. Say, Hallelujah! Shunda! Oh, isn't this great? No, it changed them. They spilled out into the streets and people around wondered, what's... They knew something happened in that prayer room. They knew in the street something happened in the prayer room. That doesn't happen with goosebumps. That doesn't happen because I felt good in service. That happened because they had an encounter with the power and the presence of the living God. And it birthed the church in that one encounter. It birthed the church that 2,000 years ago is still going strong when all kinds of other things that were started have come and gone. Empires have come and gone. The Roman Empire has come and gone. The Greek Empire, well, that was before then, came and went. All kinds of things, even in, our last gen in this last generation, have come and gone. Thousand-year Reich, pff, few years gone. Emperors have come and gone. But the church of the Lord Jesus Christ remains today. It was birthed by an encounter with the living God. Goosebumps don't do that. We've settled for so little. We've settled for things that the world settles for. They go to movies and get blessed. They just don't use that term. They go to sporting events, and when their team comes from behind with some dramatic victory, they were blessed. They just don't use that term. They're more real. 
But it's so often all we get out of church. Oh, but I heard some good things. Yeah, but I've heard good things. I've gotten good things out of some movies, some good movies, some good principles. I've shared with you before, though, I think it's Ezekiel 33 at the end. He says to Ezekiel, the people are going to come, they're going to hear your words, and they're going to leave saying, what wonderful words we heard, but they had no intention of letting those words change them. They're just like people that have applauded at a pleasant song or a pleasant sound. It's just like going to a concert. So why are we here? I can tell you why God wants to be here, but what do we want? And I believe what God's doing is He's wetting our appetite, waking us up to show us where we are. He's not angry. He's just like Jesus was with the woman at the well. If you only knew, if you only knew who is here today, if you only knew who's here Wednesday night, if you only knew who's here next Sunday, if you only knew who's here, you would come and you would ask of me and I would give you living Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and there's really not much to say other than we trust you. We come to you today and ask you to open the eyes of our understanding that we would see the opportunity and we would see the privilege that you are offering to us. Help us to learn to lift our eyes off of ourselves and the natural things around us to begin to look at you and see who you really are. Father, none of this can happen by our own strength. None of this can happen because we even just decide to. It can only happen because you draw us and then you enable us to respond. And I sense that's what you're doing. And so we rest in you. Help us to be open, to see where we are and to locate ourselves and to allow you to locate us. And then help us to come to that place that you're calling us to come to. Thank you for loving us this much. Thank you for loving us so much that you paid the price that we could have this privilege today. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.